0: Welcome to the Palm Beach County Medical Society podcast series, MedTalk. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for joining us. The discovery and development of vaccines to control infectious diseases is one of the most significant medical developments in history. But now there is a whirlpool of discussions and concerns about their safety, when they need to be used, and the like. Larry Bush is a physician who specializes in infectious diseases, and he graciously joins us today to address these issues. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This is a multi-layered topic. You mentioned that we love our antibiotics in sanitation. How much of this is good and perhaps how much of this is not so good? How do we know if we're overdoing it?
1: We know that everybody really wants an antibiotic when they're ill not even clear if they have a bacterial process. As you know, antibiotics won't affect viral illnesses, which make up most of the illnesses people visit physicians for. But people are concerned about vaccines, and when I talked about vaccines, I point out that what really changed health in the world and what defines a third-world country are things like public health revolving around sanitation and vaccination, because third-world countries in part are defined by their life expectancy, which is greatly reduced if there's a large amount of infant mortality, which is generated by poor sanitation infected dirty water, and lack of vaccines, childhood diseases. So it's what changed the world as opposed to antibiotics which people think were the game-changers. Unfortunately, people are backing away from vaccines because of unfounded information suggesting their link linked to other problems that are now being
0: diagnosed. For those who may not know, how does a vaccine work? And I realize we can't do a whole elaborate course on the history and physiology and chemistry of vaccines, but in a global manner, what does a vaccine do to our bodies?
1: The human body has two forms of immune system. One's called innate, which means if we're born normally and have normal function, everybody's born with a set of immune system defenses that help fight pathogens when you're exposed to them, such as things as white blood cells, polymorphonuclear cells, T-cells fever, granulocytes, etc. And then there's the adaptive immune system where you adapt to things you become exposed to as time goes on. An example would be building up antibodies against bacteria or vaccines or toxins. So the vaccine is given to somebody to try to mimic the adaptive immune system and create your own immunity that you would have otherwise had to wait to become in contact with that organism to develop. Another way is when we give passive immunization by giving antibodies, immunoglobulin is basically giving you those antibodies before we have time for a vaccine to make you build your own. You're mimicking the adaptive immune system and that goes back to Jenner and all the way back when things were being looked at in different type of animals.
0: You mentioned in the material that we shared before we're actually doing the interview that if HIV, malaria, hepatitis C, tuberculosis, when these vaccines are finally developed, that it could also change the world. I would like your thoughts on that. It's a very powerful statement.
1: Right now, the number one cause of infectious disease in the world, although we don't think about it in the United States, is malaria. 500,000 children die of malaria every year. We don't think about it even though the United States is the third most populated country in the world. We only make up 4.4% of the world's population. The majority of the world is exposed to malaria, which could be a devastating disease. When you look at what's the most common cause of infectious disease death in the world, even today in 2020, it's tuberculosis. Put that in perspective, we have around 330 million people living in this country. And the last year that statistics were out for, which was 2018, there were only less than 10,000 cases of active TB out of all those people. Two-thirds of which had immigrated here, so the Native American chance of getting TB is very small. Therefore, our focus on preventing TB is, is limited. So as you know, the World Health Organization has put together platforms looking at the elimination of TB and they started off with 2020, 2030. Now they're up to 2050. Their take on eliminating TB is to find everybody who carries TB, which is the majority of people who've been infected, and we call that latent TB. Treat them so they don't become infected. And therefore, I don't pass it on to anybody. That's because of a vaccine being not available. A TB vaccine, which had been available for decades, we call BCG, we don't use in this country because it's a relatively ineffective vaccine. It's not lifelong and it confuses the test that we use to see if you carry latent TB. So that's the second one. We are all here about Ebola and the devastation of Ebola, and, and it's another disease. Since we don't see it in this country, we don't give it all the notoriety that perhaps it should get outside of certain literature, particularly the literature that I read. But in the Republic of the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo now, there's the largest Ebola outbreak in the history of the world. Fortunately, just a few weeks ago, the first Ebola vaccine was released. Now, that's a game changer, but it got... Very little information here. I I get that information because of the infectious disease news that I read. But in the lay press, on the lay media you would hear on radio or watch on TV, I didn't see one report on Herbivote, which is the Ebola vaccine that's extremely effective in thousands and thousands of people who enter trials.
0: That's wonderful.
1: So these are examples of what will change the world, but unfortunately, it's not available right now.
0: It brings two questions to my mind. There has been in psychiatry a movement to try to find a vaccine against cocaine addiction. It has not been particularly successful. We keep looking for a vaccine. Are they just that hard to develop or is it just because it's expensive? Is it more a chemical problem or is it more an investment, a financial investment problem?
1: Good question. It's a combination. Companies have to be incentivized to make vaccines. And I can tell you pharmaceutical companies shy away from vaccines vaccines because there's a lot of risk in spending a lot of money on a trial that never comes to fruition. There's been a large amount of money spent on HIV vaccines and we're not near having an HIV vaccine. Secondly, is because of the legal situation that we're, unfortunately we live in at times and there's a lot of litigation against vaccines. That goes all the way back to the measles scare when Professor Wakefield in England published an article in 1998 relating the measles vaccine to autism. He stumbled across that, not looking at vaccines, he was looking at gastrointestinal diseases and happened to notice that there were a group of young children who were autistic amongst the people he was studying and he linked their recent measles vaccine to it, which set off a whole host of legal things going on as far as lawsuits linking the vaccine to autism. So the companies shy away because of the cost, the risk of more trials fail than the litigation. And now when you throw on top of that, the fact that there's an anti-vaccine culture, if you were a CEO of a company and I was a research and developer. And you asked me, what do you think we should research and develop? And you said, but people don't want to use that. People are being sued for using that. Are you expecting us to sell that to our shareholders? It's not going to fly. That's the issue with vaccines. As you know, there was a Lyme vaccine. Lyme disease is the most common tick-borne disease transmitted in this country. And that vaccine went away about a decade or more ago because of the lack of uptake on the vaccine. The new Lyme vaccine being developed and about to be launched. That's the examples of the finances of why people don't want to make vaccines. It's difficult. The science is difficult. You need to mimic the part of the immune system that's going to be protective without harming the patient. As you know, We avoid giving live vaccines, which are the most effective to immunocompromised people because the vaccine could create actual disease.
0: Measles is back. We're having measles outbreaks, and part of the problem may be that most people do not think of measles as a really serious disease, an annoyance. Kids get it. They're out of school for a couple days, and then they go back to school. It's not always that benign. Can you talk about your concern about the new measles outbreaks that are occurring? So from the time that the measles
1: vaccine first became fully effective and for utilization in the early 60s, the amount of measles back then in children were in the hundreds of thousands. And measles, other than causing a respiratory disease with a rash, causes things as bad as cephalitis and hearing loss and another type of lifelong problems that children were suffering from. As of the year 2000, it was felt that measles was eradicated in this world. But there's been an increase in the number of people developing measles now and suffering from this disease and infecting others who haven't been vaccinated or whose vaccine for some reason has worn off or maybe was never totally effective at immunizing them because of the anti-vaccine culture. If you look at the United States where the measles outbreaks have been, you can overlie that map on top of the map of where measles vaccine exemptions are given. And as you know, you can exempt from having your child be vaccinated against measles based on religious cause, which always confused me because truthfully, I'm unaware of any religion that developed after the advent of vaccine. Now it's been even more freely developed on a philosophical basis. Measles is the leading cause of vaccine-preventable mortality in the world. Think about that. The leading cause of vaccine-preventable infant mortality people go against. From 2000 to 2007, there was a decrease in measles from 145 to 25 cases per million person. There was an annual estimated measles death decreased 80%. In other words, 21 million cases of measles were prevented. However, that drastically changed. So before 1963, each year measles caused 3 to 4 million cases. In this country, about 500,000 cases were reported to the CDC annually, 48,000 hospitalizations 1,000 children developed encephalitis, 450 died, okay? As of the year 2000, measles was felt to be effectively eliminated from the United States and the world. Let me give an example. In 2016, in the United States, there were 86 cases of measles. In 2019, there were 1,241. There's only one thing that could have happened there. People who are immigrating to this country who've never been vaccinated and people in this country who refuse to have their children vaccinated and now we're exposed to these people. Travelers are the number one cause of bringing measles back to this country. It's huge and we have to do something about it. And what we have to do something about it is to get in front of the people who are saying measles vaccines harmful and convince them that the science doesn't support what they're
0: saying. Every year, we have the new flu vaccine. People have asked me, and I'm sure they've asked you, why do we need a vaccine every single year? You get measles, it's one time. You get whooping cough and all the others, it's a one-time vaccine. What's different about the influenza vaccine that every single year there has to be a new one?
1: Well, what's different about the influenza vaccine is it's not a live vaccine, and vaccines that are not live do not produce robust immunity, and it doesn't last long that's number one. Number two, influenza is made up what we call different antigen components of the virus called H and N. And the combinations of them can be hundreds. And although the World Health Organization and the CDC gets together each year and tries to predict which combination of H and N's, which influenza virus will be in the area, they're not always right. And we vaccinate against both type A influenza, and type B. There are four types of virus being vaccinated against in each year's flu vaccine, which I said is not a live vaccine and therefore is not the most immunogenic or very long-lasting. On top of that, we may not exactly hit the mark of what the vaccine is meant to prevent actually is the influenza strain that happens to be in the environment in our country at that time. That being said, this year's flu vaccine is estimated to be 47% protective. Now, you could say, well, that means half the people who get the vaccine won't be protected that's true. But it's not just that it protects you against that particular strain. There's some cross-protection. And people who get vaccinated, even though the vaccine may may have missed the mark, still get some co-protection to the point that if they do get influenza, they become less ill and they have less chance of dying. Every case of influenza that goes unrecognized transmits it to 17 people. Influenza, complicated by secondary bacterial pneumonia, which is the most common reason people get hospitalized and die from influenza. It's the sixth leading cause of death in people over 65. Meanwhile, less than two-thirds of people over 65 in this country get vaccinated for influenza, which is totally covered by all insurances. And in fact, as you see in the advertisements, you can go into pharmacies and supermarkets and be rewarded for getting the measles vaccine, not only not paying for it, but being given a gift card.
0: Have the the number of people who've been immunized gone up so much easier? It doesn't cost you a doctor's visit. You don't need an appointment. Do we have any data on that? So it, you bring up a very good point.
1: It hasn't gone up drastically and every year also the CDC puts out something called Healthy People 2010, 2020, 2030 with goals of people who take the vaccine, who agree to get the vaccine or become vaccinated and they just never have reached their goals and that's why they keep changing it to 2010, 2020, 2030. The number one influence on patients getting vaccinated against influenza is recommendation by a doctor. When people come in my office and I ask every one of them, have you had your flu vaccine? And I get answers like, no, I never get it. I never get sick. My answer to that is you don't get sick until you get sick. And this is to prevent that from ever happening. And so you don't transmit it. I've heard second answers. I heard it didn't work. And I asked them, who did you hear that from? Not a reputable science or medical source. I got the influenza vaccine last year and I still got the flu. That's because we accidentally apply the word flu to every flu-like respiratory viral illness, which is incorrect. And then, of course, the next question I get is, is it covered by my insurance? And I tell them not only is it covered by your insurance, but if you get it at Publix, you'll get a $10 gift card. And then the last question is when they say to me, do you think I should get the flu vaccine? And I give them one simple answer. I get it as soon as it comes out myself. So what else can I say? People are leery, people believe that what physicians have to say, and I'm not sure why this is happening, isn't necessarily correct as if we want to harm somebody or we
0: have some alternative motive. Physicians don't seem to have the credibility when speaking to people about vaccines and I even hear it in a psychiatric office. One of the things that's confusing to a lot of people is that some of the vaccines have different dose forms, one for younger people, one for the older folks, is that a good movement? How did it evolve like that?
1: There are various flu vaccines but there are three forms. One is a live vaccine where it's a nasal spray and as I said live vaccines usually are more potent at forming immune system response. Unfortunately with that vaccine it is live and therefore you could get influenza from the vaccine so it's only studied and only approved for people up to 49. But as I said, the majority of people who become hospitalized or who may die from flu are over 65. So it has a limited population. It's mostly children because of fear of getting another intramuscular vaccine. And this way, it's just a spray in their nose. The second is the routine killed flu vaccine, which has four components, two A's and two B's. Influenza A tends to cause a more severe disease, although this year we're seeing a lot more of influenza B. And then the third one is what's called high dose, where they also have A and B components, but it's four times the amount of component in the vaccine. Now why is that? Because people over 65 for whom this vaccine is approved and recommended, so it's called the high dose blue vaccine, don't respond as well to the routine vaccine that we give to people under 65 because their immune system just doesn't react as strongly. When you give them the high dose vaccine, they may have a little bit more discomfort in their arm because of the increase in antigen in it. They don't have any other more side effects but they become immunized more robustly than they would have with the other vaccine. So in essence, we're giving the routine vaccine for the 2As and the 2Bs to people under 65 the high dose to people over 65. The idea or fear of getting flu vaccine with the egg allergy because the vaccines produced in egg has been debunked. The CDC now says egg allergy is not a contraindication to getting a flu vaccine, egg allergy.
0: It really doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Interesting. One of the things that is of concern is that when people go to the pharmacies to get the vaccinations, which in large part is fine, but it lacks the depth of discussion that you have just touched on that they would ordinarily have with their internist. I would imagine, I guess what I'm thinking is that errors could be made or misconceptions could be made. It's not the pharmacist's job to explain it in this much detail. Do you get any feedback along those lines, or am I thinking in long lines that are, not of concern.
1: I get feedback from physicians and some people who think about it a little bit more fully. To give you an example, when I went in to get my vaccine, it was just convenient that I was shopping and I just said, I might as well get my vaccine right now. As soon as they come out, I get it, which is late summer, early fall. And I thought I would try that experiment, just what you said. I I didn't tell the pharmacist who was going to give me the vaccine that I was a physician. And I started asking the pharmacist specific questions about the flu vaccine and then I said... Oh, by the way, I see you also offer the pneumococcal vaccine, the hepatitis vaccine, the zoster vaccine. I have some questions and I started asking exactly what you said. What are some of the indications? What are the difference? What are the contraindications? What are the components of the vaccine? And not to discredit the pharmacist, what not able to answer me. That brings me to what's happening in the field of medicine. There are proposals for what are called expansion of what people can practice. It's difficult enough for an internist to answer some of these questions. I get questions from them, phone calls and texts every day about vaccines. But a pharmacist could not answer one question. I specifically asked her, for an example, is the pneumococcal vaccine, what's the clear difference between Prevnar vaccine and Pneumovac? What are the indications? What's the response rate, et cetera? All she said was, at your age group, you're supposed to get both. That was the answer. I lecture in medical school and I sit there and I wonder and I say to the students all the time, this is what has to distinguish you is this knowledge to the depth that you're going to learn it. To simplify it to say that anybody without this knowledge can do it is detrimental. It is in my mind clearly dangerous. Nurse practitioners, pharmacists, allied health professionals, these are great helps to us but they don't replace us. You never see any people with those degrees performing surgery and in operating. Why
0: is that? You bring up the other side of the whole gestalt of getting vaccinations and and medicines in large part to people. I wish we had more time to really get into it. It, it. These are critical issues. This is a start and maybe it'll make people think. And before they do things, if it's at all possible that they sit and have an honest talk with their physician about where they're going and which appropriate treatments they should pursue. Larry Bush is a physician who specializes in infectious diseases. He's in Southeast Florida. Dr. Bush, thank you so much. You've opened more doors than you've closed. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for giving me
0: the opportunity to speak.